0: Just before we um, have the Bible read to us, let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for today, for this is the day that you have made. Help us to be glad to worship you. Help us to say, I cannot wait to get to the house of the Lord where we can hear of your word again. So we pray for those who are reading to us now, that they might read as unto you, that we may not hear their voices, but hear you speak to us. And then as Paul comes to speak, cause us to listen with active ears, to hear your word Proclaim to our hearts, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Luke, chapter 12. Meanwhile... When a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the son of man will also be. Acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are before, brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can change a single hour to your life? And since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one was sorry in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows what you need them. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
2: Be dressed. Ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, He would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who, then, is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed." Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, It's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, It's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny."
3: It's a passage that contains a lot about worry, isn't there? Uh, Fears and concerns, and maybe that's why you're feeling after having heard such a long reading. Uh, after all, last week I preached on ten verses and took half an hour, and this week we've got sixty. And you may be thinking, I am quite worried about the uh, the outcome of the length of this service at this point in time. Uh, but it is actually quite helpful, isn't it, to have a a broad sweep passage like that, just to listen uh, to an extended Bible reading. We don't always do it, and to let uh, the words of Jesus. Uh, just infiltrate our minds and our hearts as he tackles things from a range of areas. Obviously, it's a long chapter. I'm going to be skimming through it, and my apologies for not doing it justice uh, from that perspective. But let me pray uh, that God in his kindness will speak to our hearts and minds. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that uh, you'll help us to understand it well, uh, to be strengthened and encouraged by it, to be warned where we need to be warned, Uh, Father, graciously speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've got a friend called, I'll call him George, just for uh, the sake of anonymity. George and I went through Young Adults Group together at church 25 plus years ago. And uh, he was a keen follower of Jesus, involved in serving in a whole range of different ways, and, and pressed on. Just recently, uh, over the last 12 months, uh, George has now said that he doesn't count himself a follower of Jesus now. He'd no longer uh, call himself a Christian. And he's got various uh, reasons that he'll go through when it comes to that. Uh, But it's caused me to wonder why would someone who's gone along for so many years uh, professing the name of Jesus get to a point where he now turns Turns away from that reality i 've got other friends who have been involved as Christians for probably equal number of years. I can think of a friend back at law school when i studied studied uh, quite a few years ago now and he was a Christian when he got to law school. I became a Christian while I was studying and he was a guy very involved and thoughtful and keen, uh, but I caught up with him not that long ago and He would still call himself a Christian, but he's not going to church. Uh, He's busy with lots of different life changes and connections and just pulled back. You know, for him, the name of Jesus has become more more of a hobby, I guess you'd say. And yet there are others that I know who've been Christians for many years and despite hardship or difficulty or trouble or anguish, are still pressing on really strongly and faithfully and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, humanly speaking, why is it uh, that some people press on and why don't others? Do you have any sense of what could cause you to get so distracted or to become, you know, anemic As a Christian, you had to become a hobby Christian. Do you have a sense of what it would take to erode you at that point and cause you to pull back? Or maybe you actually feel that's the case today. You feel like you are a bit of a, a hobby Christian. You know, someone who knows what it means to be passionate about following Jesus, but at this stage, it's just become a sideline for you in terms of your following of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we um, turn here to Luke chapter 12, there's a series of warnings, I think, about how not to become a hobby Christian. Remember back in chapter 9, verse 51, we looked at this last week, Jesus says, uh, we're told there that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Then by the time we get to chapter 12, verse 1, the reading we had today, Uh, The opening verse, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. Uh, By this stage, Jesus has sort of mega pop star status, right? Everyone is just crowding him to get his autograph. He is incredibly popular. So you get crushed just trying to get close. That's in chapter 12. By the time we get to chapter 19, All these people have deserted him and even the close ones, the ones who are near to Jesus, have pulled back. Here in chapter 12, what Jesus does is he identifies the issues or the sort of hurdles that will destroy or distract or deflate you from following the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies a number of those sort of things. But notice in chapter 12, verse 1, it's the crowd's that are trampling on each other to get close to Jesus. But look at who Jesus speaks to at this point. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. This is a chapter primarily with warnings, not not for the outsider, not for those who are thinking about following the Lord Jesus. And if you're here today, we're just delighted you're here. And it's good for you to hear these warnings, but this is really targeting those who count themselves as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this chapter is deliberately focused on. So let's look at some of the, uh, some of the warnings. First of all, Jesus talks about the danger of hypocrisy uh, in verses 1 to 3. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Back in chapter 11, uh, Jesus slices and dices the Pharisees. All right? That's, he really has tough words. There are a series of woes back in this previous chapter. So if you look at, say, verse 43 of chapter 11, Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They wanted to be treated the way they feel they should be treated. And Jesus just savages them in terms of their pretensions. Jesus is warning about hypocrisy. Right? Hypocrisy is just pretending to be something that you aren't. Uh, You can look like you've got it together as a follower of Jesus. You can look godly, but there can be no heart for the purposes of God. Now, our culture, I think, cultivates hypocrisy. Uh, We're very concerned about the externals. You know, what you look like, uh, your shape, what you wear, what you own, the jobs you have... All those are sort of outward things. But it seems to me there's also a great risk for Christians in putting forward an image of what we want other people to see. I've got a friend who uh, talks about uh, the great car park miracle that occurs for Christian people, the great car park miracle. This is the way it works. Uh, he says, you know, he can... He can Know that there are families who are going through enormous trouble, you know, tension between husband and wife where on the Saturday before church they can have fierce arguments and uh, there can be angry, loud words and, you know, there's frozen relationships, you know, and then over breakfast on the Sunday morning before church no one says anything, it's icy cold, the kids are living in fear and terror of what might break out and then they get in the car no one says a word. Right? they drive to church because they know they should be going to church, they arrive at church in the car park and then the car park miracle occurs. Right, People get out of the car and a Christian across the other side of the car park says, brother, sister, how are you going? Wonderful! right? <laughs> We're going really well, great to see you! Hugs, smiles and in we go. It's the great car park miracle. And At one level, it's just hypocrisy, pretending. That that, Sometimes it's appropriate not to show all your dirty laundry, but there can be a double life thing that occurs and Christians are subject to that sort of danger. And eventually if you do that, I don't just mean the car park miracle, but eventually if you go through life pretending to be something you are Christianly that you're not, what happens is your heart gets harder and harder and you feel more and more guilty and you start to sit further and further back when you meet with God's people. That don't just mean physically, but you're sort of stepping out of the room almost because you can't cope with those realities, the gap between reality and truth, uh, between what you're pretending to be and what is. And once you get to that sort of stage... Eventually, when you see no change and no growth in your life, you just can't bear it. And you eventually just extract yourself from fellowship with the people of God. Notice what Jesus says about hypocrisy. He says in verse 1, hypocrisy is like yeast. A little bit of it, a little bit of it just spreads. It's a bit like when you go to the beach and you get sand in your car. You can spend a year trying to get all those grains of sand out of your car after you've been to the beach. Hypocrisy is like that. It gets in. And it's so hard to get out. The only way to deal with hypocrisy, pretending to be something you're not, there's a need for confession and honesty, a need for remembering that we live by grace and not performance. Notice the other thing Jesus says about hypocrisy he says, "You can you can hide who you are from each other, but you can't from God. You can fool me every day of the week, right? But you cannot fool God, who sees into your mind and your heart." Look at verse three. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear, in the inner rooms will be declared from the rooftops. Friends, you can fool me, but God sees right through you. You know, at one level, that is terrifying. Isn't it a terrifying thing to know that the Lord of heaven and earth, you can't think or say anything that he doesn't know? I mean, that, that's a bit disturbing, I think. Not quite worrying. And yet it's comforting at the same time. It's reassuring that the Lord of heaven and earth, he knows you. And despite the fact that he knows you, he sends his son on this walk to Jerusalem so that he might give his life for you. It's enormous comfort in that, isn't there? Or he goes on. Next thing, he, he talks about the, the danger of being crippled by fear, verses 4 through 12. Uh, Fears about what can happen in the future, they can actually make you very cautious and cause you to pull back and nervously sort of approach life. Now, can I say fear is not wrong. It's actually not a bad protective mechanism when it comes to a lot of issues in life. Uh, But Jesus is saying here, you need to be scared. You need to be fearful of the right things. Okay? Um, For years and years, Sue and I, uh, would play this, this sort of uh, scene out when it came to spiders that were discovered in our house. Okay? Sue doesn't like spiders, so when a spider appears in our bedroom or in the house, Sue would say, Paul, can you kill that spider or get rid of it or both? Right? And uh, inevitably I'd say, certainly darling, you know, and I would uh, go off to attack this spider and dispose of it appropriately, but normally what would happen is the spider would escape Okay, that, that's what would happen. And after a number of years, they said, how come you can never kill a spider? You know, wh- why is it the spiders are always getting away? You know, if you got some sort of ecological concern for spiders or something like that, which is not the case. Uh, I said, well, I don't like spiders, right? So, so what happens is I approach this spider to kill it, right? And, and because I'm so sort of nervous about doing it, the spider always gets away, sees me coming and runs, runs away, right? Now now there are some spiders you should be scared of, right? Some that are incredibly poisonous. But most spiders are not that way, right? And therefore arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, when you think about it is just stupid, isn't it? Right? Like me, I'm scared of spiders, right? How much do spiders weigh? Right? A couple of grams. Right? Just a couple of grams, and I am eighty-five plus kilos, right? right? You can see why I'd be scared of the spider. It's just just folly. Fear. Notice what Jesus says, though, verse 4. He says, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. And when I hear that, I think, why not? I get it with arachnophobia. It doesn't make any sense at all. But I would have thought I should be a little bit concerned about someone who can kill me. Isn't that a reasonable fear? So what's the point that Jesus is making? It's a comparative fear thing. That's the contrast he's drawing. So if you go on to verse 5, he says, Fear him who has authority to throw you into hell. Jesus is saying, "Get, get perspective on life. That is, even for those of us who are the youngest here in this room, it actually is possible that someone could shorten your life by 50, 60, 70 years. Now, that is not insignificant. That's quite dramatic. But Jesus says it is nothing, nothing, by comparison with the one who can consign you to hell for eternity. He's saying get a right sense of proportion about your life and what counts. Which really, I think, leads to a second question, which is the question of whether we do take judgment seriously. Whether we do take the reality that we will front up before God himself and give account and understand the nature of eternity and the way in which it overshadows the reality of the here and the now. Someone spoke to me before the meeting started about the difficulties in Syria. My guess is if we were believers in Syria, we would think more about eternity than what we do living in Australia. It's just my guess. It's a horrible situation, isn't it? But here in Australia, we are cushioned by comfort, uh, generally no want, An ease of life, a security, and thinking about heaven, the reality of eternity, it just sort of gets pushed to one side, doesn't it? During the English Reformation, when Queen Mary was uh, persecuting uh, believers, there were two bishops who were arrested and uh, given the death sentence. Latimer and Ridley, they were in due course burned at the stake. When they were tied at the stake and the fire started uh, licking up around them, Ridley began to cry. And Latimer, Bishop Latimer, he said this to Ridley, Fear not, Master Ridley, and play the man, for today we start a fire in England that will never be extinguished. It's only someone who has a strong sense of security in their eternal destiny that can say that. Someone who is convinced that what God has promised in his very presence for all eternity overshadows and outweighs profoundly what we experience in this world. Fear. Jesus goes on he talks about the love of stuff as uh, Steve put it, verses 13 to 21. The whole nature of our comfor- comfortable, our affluent country, uh, which is dominated by the economy, uh, the psyche of our nation, it is built on the principle that more stuff equals greater happiness. The more you have, the happier you'll be. It's that's a, that's a simple equation that we operate with. And it's based on a worldview that says... The only thing that matters is what you can touch, touch um, feel, taste, experience. You know, Those are the only things that really do count. And that's by contrast with the Christian conviction, the Christian worldview, that there's more to life than what you can see. Jesus warns against the danger of greed, uh, the danger of wanting more the danger of measuring your life by what you have or what you possess. And what he does is he drives home the point by telling a parable about a man, a farmer, who has a lot of crops and thinks, I'll just build bigger barns, store all my crops, and I've secured my future by this means. And Jesus says about this man, he is spiritually dumb. Right? He may be a shrewd businessman, but spiritually speaking, in terms of his relationship with God, it is folly. And it's folly because of death. That is, uh, Jesus is saying, in effect, from this story, everyone retires into death. Right? You may have a, a gap between when you stop working and when you die, but everyone ultimately is going to retire permanently by dying. That's the point that Jesus is making. And you don't know when that will be. You just don't know. Lang Hancock was one of the wealthiest men in Australia. He built up the great mining empire and then he died and left it to his daughter and there's been a few family disputes you would have read about in the paper. Okay, so Lang Hancock... Right? Wealthiest man, or one of the wealthiest men in Australia at the time. Just give me an indication if you'd like to swap spots with him right now. Yeah, it's that's the point that's being made. Uh, now of course if you've got to trust in Jesus, you you wouldn't mind being dead at one level. But death it's spiritually dumb too because of life. That is You are so much more important than what you own. Your life is worth much more than what you have in the bank or the house you own or the things you've got in your safety deposit box. Isn't it um, sad for people to measure their personal value by what they own, to allow the creation around them to dictate... Their are value as people. It's a stupidity, isn't it? You see, our value is given to us by the Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, if you want to work out how valuable you are, you look through Luke 9 to 18 and work out that you are so valuable that God allowed his son to take this journey to Jerusalem and to die for you and to rise from the dead so that he might have a relationship with you. That's the value that God places on your life imagine measuring the value of your life by the house you own it's it's just all wrong it's just the other way around your value is determined by god in our world uh, can i say i think it's impossible to escape this this prevailing or this prevalent understanding of how we we measure ourselves? How do you work out if it's an issue for you? I guess there are lots of tests you could apply. Um, One of them is just to think about your dreams, you know, what you daydream about in your spare moments. Does it revolve around stuff or does it revolve around... God and his promises and his purposes. Or maybe it's the concerns you have. What are the things that worry you? Are they tied up with what you don't have? That if only you had, you could be happy and secure. Or maybe you measure what's important to you by how miserly you are. Uh, because if you hang on to stuff now it 's because you 're trying to secure your future, and of course it 's the wrong way around instead of trusting in god in verses twenty two to thirty four what Jesus does is he provides a solution uh, the the way to help you rethink uh, so that you don't actually base your whole life around what you can taste or touch or feel. Because if you think that way, then you take responsibility for your own life, and that's just rank atheism. Look with me at verses 27 to 28 of chapter 12. See what Jesus says here. Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will He clothe you? You of little faith. Uh, God clothes the flowers of the field. Do you think He can't provide clothing for you? So the point that's being made is there is no security outside of the gracious. And sovereign hand of God, and the things you pour your life into in this world, they will not last; they cannot last. It's all rubbish in due course. See, if you doubt that, uh, just remember what you have for lunch today, and then take a look in the toilet bowl tomorrow. Do you understand? now that's a little crass, I understand. Do you understand that's the point Jesus is making? He is saying that things do not last. Trust him. Verse 34. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Jesus moves on. Verses 35 to 48. He talks about the danger of uh, slackness or boredom. The danger of getting distracted as you anticipate spending eternity with him. Maybe you can remember when you had a burning impatience to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ and you no longer have that. It could be a bit of wisdom kicking in over the ages, but it could also be that sense of um, lethargy that's creeped into your life. As a guy who went to... uh, a Bible college in Sydney that I knew. He was a doctor, a very good doctor, who got a brain tumour. And uh, when he went in for the operation for his brain tumour, he was told that the chances of survival were very, very small. And then survival rate afterwards, even if he did survive, were again very, very small. Uh, now, he came through the operation very well. So what did he do with his life? Well, he went to Bible college, four years of Bible college. And then he went on the mission field overseas. And as far as I'm aware, he's still faithfully serving the gospel there. Now, I guess the people around him probably thought he was foolish. And if you're a follower of Jesus, people will think that you're foolish because you don't share their priorities that are tethered to this world. You share kingdom priorities eternal priorities it's not what our world thinks it's what god says jesus moves on verses 49 to 53 and he talks about the opposition that comes if you're a faithful follower of jesus and the picture here is of of judgment and division that even occurs within families where there's following of jesus if you're looking for an easy life where everyone is happy then do not follow Jesus. That's the point that's being made here because Jesus doesn't promise that. Verse 49, he's come to bring fire on the earth. Verse 51, not peace but division. Verse 52, a family divided against each other. And can I say, and I can say it from personal experience, it is hard when the gospel itself brings division within families. I think I mentioned the tension that it caused in my own family. When I became a Christian and uh, when uh, Sue and I told my family that we're going off to Bible college, don't ever talk to us about what you believe. Do not ever expect us to ever come and hear you preach. Do not, like there was just anger and resistance and Godless grace changed that. Uh, but there was strong division because of the gospel and I see it every week. Uh, as I catch up with people and hear about the struggles that they're having. Jesus moves on, verses 54 to 59. He talks about the importance of using good judgment. Now, at this point, the focus turns to the crowd, his disciples, but also the thousands that are gathered around. Verse 54, he said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, Immediately say, it's going to rain, and it does. He's saying you can pick the weather based on the signs that you observe in the skies. But here's his question. Do you understand, and he's saying this to the crowds, do you understand why I am here? You can pick the weather. Can you pick what God's doing in my presence? And understand that Jesus, 2,000 years later, he poses the same question to us. Do you really get why Jesus took this journey to Jerusalem? That 100-kilometre journey that he's on here in Luke chapter 12. Because it seems to me once you get why Jesus died and why he rose again from the dead, then your life will never be the same again. It just can't be. It totally transforms your thinking about life. Many of you know I was down here in Victor Harbour for the whole weekend, uh, last weekend, with 70 people over at the Adair campsite who were thinking about full-time gospel work, becoming uh, um, ministers and uh, missionaries and serving in those sorts of ways, Now, these are people with perfectly good jobs, right? And what we were doing for the whole weekend is trying to persuade them to give up these perfectly good jobs and to do something like serve Jesus where there's no security when it comes to finance uh, or the future or that sort of thing. Lunacy, wouldn't you have thought? We try and keep it secret from their parents, right? No, we don't. But you you understand, it just doesn't seem all that smart. When I was... um, There for the weekend, a couple of times people personally asked me, how did you make that decision to move out of what looked like a sensible sort of career in law and to do what you're currently doing? How many years did it take you to do that? I actually, within days of becoming a Christian, uh, having gone into the law direction, thinking money, money, you know, like I, that's, I had no motivation. I had no interest in law at all, really, but I thought it was a good way to earn money uh, and seemed like a good career to have. So I went and that. So when I became a Christian, I thought, Phew, well, it blows that out of the water. You know, <laughs> all the motivation for doing it suddenly has eroded. Within days of becoming a Christian, I thought, if, if this is true, Jesus died for me and he rose again from the dead and I belong to him and everything's up for grabs, and maybe I should go into full-time gospel work. Now, I, I had mercy on everyone else around me at that point. And I don't think I told almost anyone that that had occurred to me, and it took several years to process it through. But isn't that the reality? I don't mean that everyone should go into full-time gospel work. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying the call of the gospel means it transforms your life, no matter where you are. Soon I spent some time with a friend of ours who's now in Dubai, He's a, a consultant, and he's told me what that means. I can't quite remember it. but in Dubai, that is the money-making mecca of the world. Right? He took me to his business place. It was very nice. Right? And we sat down and they have people employed to come and serve you coffee in his office space, and it's opulent, and you know, everyone, you know that's the sort of place it is. It's quite remarkable. Do you know the reason why he's in Dubai? There's not so much to work, although he's got a spectacular job. He says the reason he is there is because he is the chair of the board of a church that was established seven years ago with 33 people. And there are now 2,500 people that are part of that church seven years later in Dubai, and they have possibly hundreds every Sunday who gather with them to investigate the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's thought about leaving Dubai and coming back to Australia, but he feels the call of God on him to serve in that way for that night. He's not there for his job, he is serving Jesus. Let me ask you if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, why has God got you placed in the house in which you live, in the town in which you are dwelling? in connection with the people that you are connected with in this town and with the opportunities he has provided for you. Some of you have retired down here to Victor Harbour. No, you haven't. (laughs) My goodness, no. God has placed you here to serve him. That's the reality, isn't it? Those of us who are employed in jobs, or those of us who are at high school, or those of us who are... We are placed here by the Lord Jesus Christ to serve him and his purposes. We belong to him. Don't get distracted, We you? Don't get um, diverted. Keep remembering the treasure that God is storing up for you in heaven that you will inherit in due course. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your wonderful mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your uh, grace and kindness. We also thank you when you warn us. And we thank you for the warnings we have here in this passage, encouragements, the security there is in following you, and yet the clear markers of not being distracted, uh, not being sidelined, not allowing the, the fires to die down and go out but rather maintaining the knowledge of your grace and mercy towards us in your son, the one who has captured our hearts and minds and lives and father we pray that day by day you'll help us to work out the implications of that to live for you to not be fearful of what others think to not be worried about the future and your provision for us to be secure in the promises you've made to us in the Lord Jesus Christ